0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at lifeLock.com/aware. Terms apply.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're
2: listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 253.
2: On today's show, we talk about an ivory baton, a Roman villa that may have belonged to Pliny the Elder, and possible sonar images of Amelia Earhart's plane.
1: Let's dig a little deeper, 16,000 feet deeper. (laughs) Welcome to The Archaeology Show, Monday edition. Monday edition.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... We decided that given our work schedules lately, that we would move our release date to Mondays instead of Sundays. So hopefully nobody gets mad about that. (laughs) (laughs) We're just hoping that it will fit our schedules better to have a whole weekend to get things done because sometimes we fall behind and with work during the week and everything, it's just a lot to release it on Sundays sometimes. So
1: I know we're a couple of weeks ahead right now because of some interviews and such and we're going to... Try to keep that going, but it still is better to just have this time yeah. the whole weekend with, with you know things to do. Because as we're full-time RVers, we we often obviously work during the week, and yeah. sometimes our we, weekends are taken up by driving, and sometimes they're taken up by you know just experiencing a place that we're at. So yeah. having an extra day to, to get, get the podcast done. done will help us keep it going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, definitely.
2: So yeah. Well, that's what we're doing
1: All with right. this
2: episode going forward.
1: <laughs> yeah. Until we move it to Tuesday.
2: No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Monday's good. We don't have any other shows on the network that release on Mondays either. So We don't anymore, do we? No. So it's like a nice balance to yeah. have this be on Monday yeah. with the rest of the the shows. So
1: later in the week. All right. Well, this first article has been in the news a little bit. And mm-hmm. it's kind of cool because it's, you know, something that was found. But but a new analysis is showing that it yeah might be for a different use.
2: I know. And it's experimental archaeology, which... I always get very excited about that because it's really fun to try to recreate something and recreate the thing that it makes. So they do that in this article. Yeah. So we found this on fizz.org. And the name of the article is experiments suggest ancient 4 ivory baton was used to make rope. Yeah. And then we also link to the open access paper that it was originally published in, which was in Science Advances. So actually like this. The fizz.org article was kind of like short and sweet. You know, mm-hmm. it was a like good, like, like quick overview of the topic. It has some great photos in it. So it's certainly worth checking out. But then I wanted more. <laughs> <laughs> so then I started reading the actual paper and it's it's really cool and really in depth. So, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, a recent analysis of this ivory baton suggests that it dates between thirty five thousand and forty thousand years ago. And this was originally found in 2015 with 15 pieces of ivory. It was all in a cave in Hollefels in the Ach Valley of southwestern Germany. None of that is pronounced right.
2: (laughs) It's fine. It's good enough. (laughs) (laughs) So the ivory is from mammoth tusks. And these 15 pieces were reconstructed into one artifact that appears to be carved or worked by modern humans. Mm -hmm. And you can really see in the photos the way they reconstructed it there's a lot of different fragments that they had to put back together yeah but it is really cool that they found that many pieces of this same artifact and were able to do that Mm -hmm. the only reason they're able to do this analysis is because they have almost the entire thing once they put all these pieces back together so that's really cool
1: the artifact itself they tried to date it but were unsuccessful in getting an exact date with any sort of certainty and i'm not even sure i mean ivory is like it's not teeth yeah but you know, it's it's interesting. I yeah. Don't, I don't think you can even get DNA out of Ivory.
2: I'm not sure. They didn't really go into why they weren't able to get
1: yeah. a
2: date with a high degree of certainty. It's not, it sounds like they tried and they just basically mm-hmm. didn't trust whatever came out of the process. Right. So, but it was found in a stratigraphic layer that is solidly radiocarbon dated between 35 and 40,000 years ago. So it's a large date range, unfortunately. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, still, you know, that's not bad to say that it fits into that 5,000-year, you know, chunk of time.
1: And this is another example of relative dating coming to the history. Yeah, yeah. Coming to the... Rescue? Rescue. (laughs) I mean, there's so many things in archaeology that just can't be reliably dated, but there's so many other things that can. Mm -hmm. And that's where you just put it within that window. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't really pin it down, but you can put it within that window and that works out.
2: Yeah, and you don't even necessarily need an artifact itself to be carbon dated. Mm-hmm. As long as there is carbon in the layer intermixed with the artifacts and you can date that carbon. Yeah. Then you can say that those artifacts are contemporaneous and that they right. date to that time frame so yeah
1: of course the researchers who initially found this thought that it was a piece of art I Yeah. Mean, anytime we don't recognize something it just goes down as art or ritual
2: <laughs> right which is well, art and ritual ivory, pretty
1: much the same thing
2: right and it's ivory which is like a special material right it's got yeah, holes it special in it back then. yeah i mean i mean i don't know how many mammoths they were taking down it probably was I, kind of a special thing to get that done right i'm not
1: i'm just not sure well sure but i think it was also you know more common than you would think, right? Because, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a mammoth, Mm -hmm. and we think that's a huge thing to do. but And, of course, they did, too. It was probably really dangerous, but Mm -hmm. also just kind of part of life, you know? And you've got tusks. And even if you didn't take the mammoth down, they die.
2: Yeah, that's true. You you can find it on the landscape. That's that's true, for sure. So it's baton-shaped, like we said, approximately 21 centimeters long, and it has four holes, like, in a row carved Mm. into it. They describe it as looking like a modern cricket bat which i don't really know what those look like but okay if that helps well, somebody visualize what that looks like <laughs>
1: actually i think you can more accurately visualize it as like one of those movies where some catholic nun is smacking some kid on the <laughs> on the on the butt with a paddle right that's kind of what a cricket bat like looks that like. yeah <laughs> right, so, right so i think it's a little smaller than that
2: it is it's smaller it's like yeah. smaller scale but right. shaped like that
1: Yeah. the holes have spiral grooves carved along the edges and the two researchers from the University of Tübingen... Tübingen? I think it's Tübingen. Tübingen? Yeah. Tubing, Nicholas Connard yeah. and Verl Rutz had a hunch that it was more than just a piece of art. So they started doing some analysis.
2: Yeah. And if you look at the pictures, you can really see the grooves that they're talking about. And they're in this almost like spiral mm-hmm. shape. It's it's really obvious and really purposely dug out on those edges there. So Yeah. And these two researchers, they... They thought the holes looked like they had some kind of use wear from something being repeatedly pulled through them, mm-hmm. maybe. So that was where they were starting from. They were like, it just doesn't seem like art. think there's something else going on here. So their best guess that they were going to test was that it maybe was used for making
1: rope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as they were testing this theory, they performed micro and macroscopic analysis of the use wear on the whole edges. And the images do appear to support the rope theory. And there are images of this in the original article, not mm-hmm. the original article. Well, yes, the original article, but also the fizz.org, the, the fizz.org article. Yeah. So yeah. go check that out. It's pretty neat.
2: Yeah, they're, they're very cool. And mm-hmm. in addition to that, they also did residue analysis on the walls of the holes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that analysis suggested that there was some sort of plant material in or on these holes at some point, which isn't. Perfect evidence, but it is pretty good, you know.
1: It's also crazy that after thirty-five to forty thousand years, there would still be He's a residue of residue, plant material. Right? Yeah,
2: well, they show it in the in the the little images of yeah. like the residue of these like fibers or whatever mm-hmm. that they found on the holes. So
1: yeah, yeah. And it's like microscopic stuff in yeah. the little pores of this ivory.
2: Mm-hmm, definitely. So they did that scientific analysis. It's kind of supporting their theory, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, let's let's go forward and make a replica and see if we can make the thing that we're saying this tool might have made, (laughs) which would be rope. So they created a baton out of similar material and similar shape and all that stuff. And then they performed experiments to test the functionality of the holes individually and of the four holes in combination. And they tested that with sinew from deer, flax, hemp, cattail, linden, willow, and nettles. Mm -hmm. So they tried a variety of different, both Animal products and yeah. vegetable matter, I guess. <laughs> yeah,
1: pretty much. Yeah, and they had varying degrees of success using each of these fibers to make a rope. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most successful, they said, was using cattail to make a thick, strong rope. Yeah,
2: yeah. By feeding it through the holes, it maintained regular thickness, and it helped control tension. So, and the the grooves that were carved along the edges, those like spiral grooves. What that did is it broke down any leaves that were attached to the cattail still and took all those fibers and sort of oriented them in the right direction for creating the rope. So that was part of what those grooves were doing and what they hypothesized that they would do, which it turns out that it did. So it was a pretty like labor intensive process. (laughs) It requires a whole bunch of people. There'd be one person per hole feeding the material in. Yeah. So up to four people feeding material through the holes if they were using all four of them, mm-hmm. and then on the other side you had to have at least one person who was twisting those strands together into a rope. So you're talking three to five people basically as a requirement, you right. know, to to manage this whole thing while they were creating the rope. So yeah, but
1: when you have that many people, it apparently went fast, and these are people trying this that really don't have a lot of experience with yeah. this sort of method. And even so, they were able to make about five meters of really strong, supple rope in about 10 minutes, which is incredibly impressive.
2: Yeah, it is. it is, And you can see how valuable that would have been to an ancient group of people who mm-hmm. needed... I mean, rope would have been essential for a lot of different things. So to be able to make it that quickly, I'm sure this would have been a very, very useful tool to yeah.
1: have. The one thing that leads me to think, why did they ever think this was art... Is that these types of perforated batons are referred to, the, well, they're referred to in German as Luxstab, mm-hmm. but they're well known in upper Paleolithic periods.
2: Yeah. They, and they found a lot of
1: them. It's like, if you find a lot of them, I mean, it's not people just replicating the same art over and over again. Yeah. Now, I mean, the four hole version, like the one they found here has only been found in a couple areas, but they all date to about the early Argnatian age in the Paleolithic time period, which is about the time that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: I don't, yeah. I don't know why it took this long for somebody to think that maybe there was a function to these rather than art. And like, don't get me wrong. They could be both artistic and functional Mm -hmm. because there's no reason why a tool can't also be beautiful. But, you know, to assume that it's art and didn't have some kind of function is, you know, probably a, well, you know, without any other better ideas or options, it yeah. takes two people to look at things with different eyes to come up with, you know, this whole rope idea right. and then to test it and see how well it worked. And I'm guessing that's going to prompt some reanalysis of some of these other batons that have been found that to this time period to see if sure. you can find the residue like they did on this one. And also that use wear analysis to see if right. maybe it was used for making rope because yeah. I don't, I mean, it seems like it's a pretty good use case for this this tool
1: yeah all right well we're gonna go from making rope to finding out why you shouldn't sail your boat without (laughs) without a motor towards an actively erupting volcano back in a minute
0: (laughs) waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands
2: Not acknowledging that. I want to put,
1: uh, I want to get a t shirt that says the and actually have a long set of paws like from some (laughs) animal in the middle there and then archaeology show. See, only a few people that'll get it.
2: I just don't support this at all.
1: (laughs) Oh man. All right. Well, now we're over in Italy, Naples to be exact. Mm -hmm. And as I've said, Many times in that part of the world, even like England and all over the place there, you can't drop a spoon in the ground without finding something Roman or something at all, really. But right. generally something Roman. Yeah. And that happened here when they were excavating for a... Actually, they removed a swimming pool, I think, and they were trying to make a park or something yeah, like that. Yeah, build a park. And of course, found a luxurious, possibly famous Roman villa.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, right? Why not? Yeah. I was wondering if maybe... It was Italian CRM that discovered this. I'm sure, it right? Well, it would,
1: CRM would imply that they're required to do yeah. some sort of pre-excavation analysis, but it seemed like the article implied that they just found it almost accidentally while they it were did. doing construction. It
2: did, yeah. And then yeah. somebody had the budget and wherewithal to get this excavation yeah. done. So we're lucky for that, I guess. Yeah. But
1: anyway, they yeah, think- the article. <laughs> Back yeah. to the
2: article. So, so it's called first century villa discovered near Mount Vesuvius. Maybe where Pliny the Elder watched catastrophic eruption. Yeah. And this is in live science.
1: Yeah. And they think this luxurious villa, apparently. I don't know if they've ever found a non-luxurious villa. There's a lot of luxurious yeah, villas. Like villas. Yeah, like villas by
2: nature are luxurious. Right. right? Yeah. So, I anyway, want a villa.
1: I always say Pliny the Elder. Is oh, that, do you? I don't know what's right, Pliny though. Pliny
2: or Pliny? Yeah, I don't really I don't know. know. I am not sure. Oh, well. Okay. I'm
1: going to say Pliny. You say okay, Pliny. Okay, well, I'm
2: going to say Pliny. All so, right.
1: there. Well, Pliny the Elder, <laughs> they think this is, might be where he first witnessed the... Again, as I mentioned before, the massive volcanic eruption that would later claim his life. Not much later.
2: Not a lot later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe weeks, yeah. potentially, but yeah. So his real name was Gaius Plinius Secondus. <laughs> Thanks, Romans. Yeah. And he basically, the, the short story is, and we'll tell a little bit more about this at the end, but he famously sailed from his home towards the eruption in an attempt to rescue some people that were affected by it
1: yeah because from this vantage point he could see mount vesuvius pretty yeah, clearly yeah yeah and the whole bay
2: and they know for sure what happened to him because his nephew and adopted son pliny the younger wrote in a letter that he witnessed the elder's death a few hours later and when he was overcome by toxic gas from the volcano yeah. so they have like a firsthand accounting of what happened and there's no reason to think he would have lied about it so yeah, yeah
1: true but I think they said it was like Mount Vesuvius is 20 miles away, first off. Yeah. And it wasn't right up next to the shore. So I guess if he was sailing across, mm-hmm. that's fine. But if his son could see him die without aid of a telescope or anything, because he didn't have that, wasn't invented yet, some oh. sort of vision thing. How did he know he died from the gases and his son didn't also succumb to the gases? I
2: assumed he was with him on the ship. Oh, no. I think he was on the shore. And didn't die. Like, you know, but know. Ma- but maybe not. Or maybe... Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Or Not maybe sure. maybe he was overcome by the gas when he got back yeah, from from you know wherever he landed over yeah. there. So yeah, I don't know. That's that wasn't clear. I didn't really deep dive into that to find out the full details. But yeah.
1: Well, either and, way, um, this excavated villa at a place called Punta Sarparella is northwest of Naples uh, in the town of Bacoli. And would have been the port city of Mycenaeum in plenty of the elders' time. In fact, he commanded the Roman naval fleet in that city. And I think I read in the article that he was like the Roman name for what he was, was commander blah, 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 Mycenaeum or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
2: Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the villa, it clearly belonged to a wealthy Roman. They don't know for sure yet who, but it has a clear view of Mount Vesuvius, approximately 20 miles away across the bay. And we know that... He, Pliny the Elder, would have watched the eruption from his villa. We know that from the the Mm -hmm. records. So it's a good guess that it might have been his.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. Some of the remaining walls that were found were built from diamond shaped blocks of soft limestone called tufa and they were decoratively arranged like a net that extended onto the beach and into the water, which was kind of neat.
2: Yeah, I was kind of struggling to visualize that, but yeah. I think it's kind of like a like a trellising pattern almost. Is that kind of what they were getting at? I don't at? know, yeah. And then that created the wall, so a very open, holy kind of wall that mm-hmm. that went off into the water from the villa. That was, I don't know how you envisioned that, but that's kind of how I took that to yeah. mean. If this villa was indeed Pliny's I haven't and now I don't even know how I'm pronouncing it. How do you do it? Pliny. Pliny. That's how I say it. All right. If this villa was indeed (laughs) Pliny's, he would have entertained many of the Roman elite at banquets in the villa's courtyard. Obviously, like you do when you're Roman elite. (laughs) I think
1: it's required if you have a villa. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: And just a little bit more about the man in question. He was born into a wealthy Roman family and he rose to prominence in the Roman army.
1: Yeah, he was also a very prolific writer, which is probably how most people have heard the name. Yeah. And he wrote a book called Natural History, which is probably his most famous. And in that book, he attempted to record literally everything about the world. (laughs) There are 37 volumes with contemporary knowledge of zoology, botany, geology, mineralogy, Astronomy, technology, and more. And somebody was quoted in the article as saying it may have been the world's first encyclopedia. Yeah. You know, something I like know. that. I know.
2: I love that. And he also wrote like a lot more stuff than just that, but mm-hmm. a lot of it has been lost to time apparently. So this is the most complete and the the most, I, I guess, like spectacular yeah. Of his writings that we have left, so yeah,
1: yeah. Keeping in mind that he was a naval commander, when I was first envisioning them saying that he died sailing across the bay to try to save his friends, I was thinking of like a small sailboat. Yeah, like he like hopping sail. to his boat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm guessing boat. it was more like a warship, probably. <laughs> probably, and a whole bunch of other people probably died too.
2: Yeah, it's possible. Again, if, I, yeah. If he went to
1: save people, he had to have a big enough boat to bring them back. Yeah.
2: Well, he certainly had the power to command people, many yeah. people, and also larger vessels to do his bidding. Whether or not he would have done that just mm-hmm. to save his friends, we don't know, but it's definitely possible. Yeah. And I love this, that he was warned that it would be dangerous to go over there. I mean, can you imagine it? Like, all of Naples is basically watching this happen, right?
1: Yeah, it erupted for like three days.
2: Yeah, and I think there was like, it was even longer than that, I think, because yeah. there was like some pre-eruptions and stuff yeah. that people ignored and all that. So... Yeah, they're just like watching this happen and they're like, oh, you don't want to go over there. (laughs) Like what's going on is what's going on. You can't help now. But uh, I love this quote from him. He didn't create this quote, but he quoted the famous proverb, fortune favors the bold. Yeah. (laughs) When he was told that this would be a dangerous mission. And I thought that was funny because he wasn't so fortunate since he (laughs) died a few hours later on the shore at Stabier. Yeah. Yeah. So that was what happened to him. I mean, you know, I'm sure his friends appreciated the, the rescue attempt or rescue if it did actually happen. Yeah. But yeah, Vesuvius was, you know, unstoppable at that point, And right. anybody in the vicinity was just various terrible ways of death happened to those people. So, yeah.
1: Well, some people think Amelia Earhart died on the shore. <laughs> and, <laughs> and some then, don't. And some don't. We'll find out what they think on the other side of the break. And it's called Amelia Earhart's Plane May Have Crashed in the Heart of the Pacific Ocean, Explorer Claims.
2: And this has been all over the internet.
1: Yeah. All over it. It's Amelia Earhart. Well,
2: yeah, I guess every time, right? Yeah. But this article is from Life Science. Mm -hmm. But there are many, many, many of them. Choose your favorite (laughs) source and you can go read about, about this and check out the images. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, the current team called Deep Sea Vision that's been doing this whole exploration. And the, the guy who kind of funded this whole thing spent 11 million dollars making this yeah. thing come true. So much uh, money. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. But they were actually taking sonar images of a whole bunch of area. And I did read somewhere in here that it would it was like 90 days after they actually took these images that they mm-hmm. found it because they weren't really analyzing them in real time. So they couldn't just go back and take more. They're going to later. But either way, they found what looks like sonar images of a plane 16000 feet below the surface. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And these images were captured about a hundred miles off the coast of Howland Island, and that's an uninhabited coral atoll that was supposed to be a refueling stop in Amelia Earhart's flight around the world in 1937. Yeah. And you might have heard of that island because this is the island she never made it to. Mm-hmm. We don't think she ever made it to. She definitely didn't make well, it there for her. There. She didn't make it there for her refueling stop. But we yeah. don't know where she, where things went wrong yeah. between that and her last stop. So yeah.
1: Yeah. She was flying a Lockheed Electra. You may have heard of that too. She made that plane pretty much famous. Mm-hmm. It's a Lockheed Electra 10E, and that is a twin engine plane. This plane is unique because it had distinctive twin vertical stabilizers on the tail. So when you have a, imagine the flat tail that looks yeah. like smaller than the front wing, but it looks like a little wing. Yeah. Got two little stabilizers right on the ends of each of the um, oh, tail. Okay. And that's, that's a Lockheed Electra. Okay. And Again, that is unique to that plane. And back in that time, there weren't too many planes that looked like that, especially ones yeah. that were crossing the ocean. Mm-hmm. So according to Tony Romeo or Romeo, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Um, he's Romeo a former pilot, too. but he's the CEO of Deep Sea Vision. He says that this sonar image clearly shows what appears to be these two stabilizers.
2: I mean, I see what he's talking about when you look at that image, yeah. right? Like I can Just see... Just two little smears, really. Yeah, it is. Smear is a very good way to describe yeah. it. It's a very smeary image. We'll
1: talk about that in a second.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. But his team used an underwater Hugin drone, which is a torpedo-shaped device that autonomously maneuvers through the water and scans the seabed and creates these images. Yeah. Now, of course, the reason that this article is out there is, you know, there's going to be a debate about (laughs) whether or not this image is what they're claiming. And to be totally honest, they're not fully claiming anything. They're just saying, hey this is what this looks like. Yeah. You know, let's do more research. So that's kind of like where they're at at this moment, but I'm sure they're also super excited. Like maybe this is it, but yeah, maybe, but there are people who disagree or not disagree, but just are skeptical. And one of those groups is the international group for historic aircraft recovery. And that's TIGAR T I G H A R. And they, have always said for a very long time that it's much more likely that Earhart landed on an island and survived as a castaway before she finally died. Mm -hmm. So the plane crashing into the ocean is not part of their narrative at all. So they're immediately skeptical of this image, for sure. But they have some good reason to be skeptical. Yes. Representatives from Tigar say that the shape of the wings in the image is completely wrong for the Electra. And I'll let you explain why it's wrong, because it's getting like into technical piloty stuff. And I feel like you'll know that better than me.
1: Yeah. They say that the Electra had a very unique design mm-hmm. in that there was this massive beam going wingtip to wingtip. or really engine to engine where yeah. the engines kind of hung off this beam and went straight through the middle of the airplane. And they say that it's relatively impossible for the wings to sweep back like that. And I'm yeah. like, even if it hit the water at like a high rate of speed. Now, If it hit the water at a high rate of speed, which could have, you know, possibly folded the wings on a plane like that, they probably wouldn't be sitting with the plane 16,000 feet below Yeah, like,
2: thinking about, like, the Titanic, for example, and how many pieces it broke into because of the weight of the ocean, like, crushing down on Mm -hmm. it, you would think a little airplane like this would have broken into pieces, so...
1: Well, like I'm saying, I mean, it could have gone to the bottom of the ocean intact, intact. for sure, but as it hit the water, depending on how it hit... I mean, like I said, yeah. if it had swept the wings back and ripped them off, they wouldn't still be sitting with the plane They'd yeah. be somewhere else and they wouldn't know what they were looking at.
2: And you really have to go look at the photos to visualize this. They do this great comparison where they mm-hmm. show the image, the sonar image, and then next to it, like a diagram of what yeah. her airplane looked like. And you can see that the wings are, they're angled, of course, because wings always are, but they're, they're straight across. Yeah. They don't, they don't face backwards at all. And the sonar image, the wings are definitely like angled back. back. Yeah. Like yeah, they, they were swept. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: so Tony, uh, Romeo, he's, he's like, well, there's probably a reason for that. He's cause when you have sonar, looking at something at an angle and moving at the same time, it creates these sort of stretching yeah. of images. He says you can even see that in the tail. He's like, mm-hmm. when you when you correct for all the stretching, it looks like an, a Lockheed Electra. Yeah. It looks like the plane. So,
2: Which totally yeah. sounds legit to me, too. So I'm like, cool. I believe both these guys. Right. <laughs> I don't really know what to believe at this point. And obviously, there needs to be a lot more research. Yeah. So, yeah. I
1: mean, people are right to be skeptical because yeah. Tygar has found... You know, quite a bit of evidence, which we'll talk about in a second, Mm -hmm. but these deep sea vision or whatever they're called, they're heading back later this year to obviously take some more pointed images of it and just really see what they're looking at.
2: And oh, they also didn't have a functioning camera on it when they passed Mm -hmm. over this. So they didn't get any actual like camera images. So they want to go back and get actual camera images that might show, you know pieces of a wing or a number or something where they can actually match it to the airplane or if not her airplane, then somebody's right. Like it, it does look like an airplane, right? Like that.
1: And then the guy, Tony Romeo, he's, he specifically says it could be a, a different plane entirely, like a world war two plane. Yeah. Totally. Something like that. So it was all right around in that time period.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's still really cool to find it from an image like this though. And yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, he gained a lot of press, by just uttering the words Amelia, Amelia yeah,
2: totally. Might even get some more funding.
1: People are just <laughs> yeah. obsessed with Amelia Earhart. Well,
2: I have to imagine that they were in that area to look for Amelia Earhart. Because well, why was. else would you would you be in that part of the yeah. ocean, right?
1: Yeah, they were. They were definitely there looking for. Yeah, Amelia Earhart. and they
2: covered a huge area. Yeah. in this this. Search grid that they were doing. Right. So, yeah.
1: So, there's a reason Tigar doesn't feel like this is her plane. And the only reason yeah. they think that is because, well, they think they're in the wrong spot. Yes. So, their version of events is that Amelia Earhart and navigator Fred Noonan veered off the planned route that would have taken them to Howland Island to refuel. They ended up landing in the reef around the uninhabited Gardner Island, otherwise known as Nicomororo, right now. Yes. So,. And, and
2: and I thought this was really cool. And I felt like this is very good evidence for them. Mm-hmm. But and maybe you can explain this better because I don't quite understand how it works. But I guess they were sending distress calls for several nights from the plane itself. And so finally, the rising tides swept the plane away and off the reef edge because yeah. because they didn't see it from the air when they were searching for them. So they know the plane was gone at that mm-hmm. point. But I guess radio bearings taken on the signals that they were sending sort of match up with the Gardner Island area. And that's why they think they landed there. But I'm like, how did they get bearings on those radio signals? Like, how does that work? How could they, how do they,
1: well, it's, it's signal strength. Oh, okay. yeah. So if you've got a, if you've got something sweeping back and forth and, and your needle pegs because you're receiving a transmission in a certain direction Mm -hmm. that tells you that the signal came from that direction and early radio stuff like that was incredibly powerful in fact, there's an instrument inside of, I don't think some modern aircraft really have this anymore, but there's an instrument inside an aircraft that I learned how to fly on mm-hmm. that's used for something completely different. But if you're like lost, you can tune into an AM radio station if you know where it's at and it will basically point you in the right direction of that AM oh, radio station that's because so they're, so, fascinating. they're so powerful. It okay. just picks it up. So Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah.
2: So that is some pretty solid evidence that they were well, in the vicinity of this island. Like, again... We have a link in the show notes to Tiger's website where you can go look and where they've got these these signals like crisscrossed in there right along the edge of Nicomaroro Island. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's what the native people call it, I think, which is why they've switched to referring to it as that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a U.S. Navy search plane flew over the island while searching, and they saw signs of habitation, but no plane. And they assumed it was just local inhabitants on the island, but uh, according to the time frame, the island actually had not been occupied since 1892. Mm-hmm. So couldn't have been, but the Navy didn't know that, I guess.
2: They, yeah, I guess they didn't realize that yeah. at the time. That wasn't put together till later. So the theory came from that, that it was Earhart and possibly Noonan that lived as castaways on the
1: mm-hmm.
2: atoll before they eventually died as castaways. So, yeah.
1: So. And in 1991, a metal plate washed ashore uh, on the island Mm -hmm. and apparently it has like riveted punctures that are not a precise match to the plane, but could have come from what they said is a repair during the flight that isn't documented. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you got to fix the plane, but there's
2: some like there's definitely
1: some reaching with this bit of story.
2: And this is from yet another article that I found. Yeah. And I just thought it was interesting because, again, using technology, modern technology to do some really cool things like we might eventually get an answer to this mystery as technology keeps advancing. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they more recently took that metal plate that was found in 1991 and they did neutron radiography, which is a non-damaging imaging technique, and it brought out some letters and numbers. Mm-hmm. They are meaningless right now, D24 XRO and then either 335 or 385 depending on, you know, your preference because <laughs> right. it's hard to tell in the picture they have not been able to, to connect any of that to her plane yet. And this, this metal plate, like if you look at the pictures, it's pretty small. So it's not like it was a tail number or something. This is, this is like some kind of random number letter thing. That's just on that piece of metal and who knows what it belongs to. So, but you know, technology is always moving forward and they brought this out with this new technique. So that, I mean, you know, just got to keep adding to the, to the pile of evidence before we get an answer. Right.
1: Yeah. Finally, in 1940, bones were discovered on Nicomaroa Island. But apparently those remains have since been lost. I do know, know how you just lose human remains? I'm like, WTF? It happens all the time. Like, well,
2: it does. It happens so often. Yeah. Like, where did they go? But the there was forensic analysis done on those bones in 1941, I think. So, you know, that time yeah. time period. And they determined that it belonged to a man. Now, look, I took a lot of forensic analysis classes in college. And what I can tell you is that the techniques used in 1941 were way behind the techniques that we have today. So I, I think maybe, maybe those bones were from a man. And if Mm. they were, they could be from, from Fred, from Fred Fred Noonan. But you know, the techniques were not great back then. So they could be from a woman. I mean, I'm pretty sure Amelia Earhart was like fairly tall. And a lot of the way that they sex bones sex than back in the day was just by size. A smaller meant woman, larger meant man, but that's just not accurate because there are smaller men and there are larger women. Mm -hmm. So you need more than just that to say and it depends on what kind of bones they had. Like some parts of the body are more obviously man or woman. So without knowing what bones they were analyzing, I wouldn't say for sure. I don't know. I have a lot of skepticism about say in 1941 saying that it was a man. And then also the fact that those bones disappeared. And I don't know. I'm just like, okay, well, without those, without knowing the context, people were on that island back in the 1800s. It could have been from any one of those people that were there. So I just, the human remains bit of it is sketchy at best for me personally. So,
1: yeah. I'd also heard just kind of as an aside on why this all went so horribly wrong. There's a lot of articles out there that, You can find that say that, you know, Fred Noonan was a a well-known, pretty good navigator. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and he that's why he was on this flight. Yeah. And but I did see something recently and I I can't find the source that I found, but I did see something recently that came out because this article came out talking about how he may have made a calculation error that he wasn't even aware of. Yeah. It had something to do with the route that they took in the in the the distance of it and it was mm-hmm. just incorrectly determined and they just ran out of fuel Yeah, prior to where they thought they would, mm-hmm. you know, cause he had, he had miscalculated that, but there's no real evidence of that. It's just one of those things that kind of fits the narrative. It does. If it's true, yeah, you know, but there's a lot of things that could fit that narrative. Mm-hmm. A lot of circumstances. Yeah. You just got to look at which one's most likely. Yeah. So,
2: well, we've talked a lot about all of this, this whole mystery here. And I think the takeaway for me from this is that Tiger has one, one theory about what happened Mm -hmm. they have created this narrative that does seem to have a lot of evidence supporting it it is an interesting you know it it does seem like it could be true right this whole island crashing castaway thing right but if this sonar image after they do more research after they they get more images better images if it Mm -hmm. is her aircraft then that blows that theory out of the water completely because howland island was like way over you know like north i think and then gardner island was south so like it's just they, they couldn't have happened together these two these two yeah, stories so one or the other. it would yeah it would definitely change everything if this is her airplane well it would solve the mystery well, if it is her airplane like if it her airplane's in the ocean in the middle of nowhere then i don't think they it would done with it <laughs> necessarily
1: change anything i mean tygar has been pushing the narrative that you know the evidence they've found supports but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean anybody believes that yeah it's just the current theory that is being pushed pretty hard by that organization it is that's right? true but if yeah. you if you look at the at the story anywhere they're still going to say we don't know what happened or
2: Yeah, basically. Yeah, so the radio signals though, that is the most convincing well, thing for me, right?
1: But was it from them?
2: Oh, right. Yeah. yeah I so. mean, so but why else who else would be out in that area? Yeah, it's like mostly uninhabited islands in the middle of yeah. the ocean. I mean, yeah, I yeah. don't know. So Anyway. Yeah, it's a mystery. It's a fun one to talk about though and like debate back and forth. So I enjoy when stuff like this comes up and you can kind of go through it all again. And mm-hmm. I think I fall on the, on the Gardner Island side of things still, but I am very interested to see where this sonar image yeah. goes for sure.
1: Yeah. I'm sure there are lots of planes in the ocean.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm not saying this is not a plane. I just
1: definitely a plane.
2: It's, it that Yeah. It looks like a plane. It must be a plane. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's cool. All right. Well, with that, I guess we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArchPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland,